0: This week on YAP, we're welcoming back Chris Voss, formerly the FBI's lead international hostage and kidnapping negotiator. These days, Chris spends his time as an author, professor, and CEO of the Black Swan Group he's regarded as one of the most influential negotiators of our time and he wrote the best-selling book never split the difference known as the Bible of negotiation Chris joins us on yap today to teach us how to negotiate as if our lives depended on it and how to become more persuasive in our professional and personal lives Chris first joined me all the way back in episode number 23 negotiate like a boss with Christopher Voss and I also did a yap live with him not too long ago on Clubhouse with Alex Carter and that room really blew up. We must have had like 10,000 people in and out of that room. It was such a blast to have him back on the show this time around, and it's always an honor to speak with such a credible expert like Chris. In today's episode, Chris details his journey from FBI agent to hostage negotiator, and we'll cover his negotiation tactics in detail. For example, we'll learn why starting with saying no in a negotiation can be more useful than starting with yes, and we'll uncover the neuroscience behind tactical empathy and why that's the best way to defuse a situation. We'll also get into body language, covering Chris's 73855 body language method. And lastly, Chris will share examples of real-life situations where these negotiation tactics can be used in your day-to-day life, so you can practice before a high-stakes situation takes place. If you're looking to learn how to negotiate your way through any situation, you'll want to listen in closely to this episode, and even maybe rewind it a few times. Enjoy the show! Hi, Chris, welcome to Young and Profiting Podcast. Super excited to have you here today.
1: I'm flattered to be on, it's my pleasure.
0: So you were back in episode number 23. It was called Negotiate Like a Boss. It was one of our Yap Classics, one of the most downloaded episodes ever on this podcast. So very psyched to have you back on. I know my listeners love your stuff. I also had you on Clubhouse in a live and we replayed it on the podcast with Alex Carter, who's the world's number one female negotiation expert. And you are the top male negotiation expert, I would say, in the world. So just so thankful to have you here today.
1: Thank you very much. It's my pleasure.
0: Okay. So for those of the people listening out there who haven't heard episode number 23, we went into your career journey and how you got into negotiation. So I'd love to hear that high level. How did you get into this space?
1: I was an FBI agent and then I was on FBI SWAT. And then I switched over to negotiation, hostage negotiation, uh, sort of by accident as a result of a knee injury and... Thank God for, you know, moments like that, that make your life go another direction because hostage negotiation was way more satisfying for me personally than SWAT ever was. And SWAT was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. It's so interesting that your diversion from SWAT was because of a knee injury. And that actually led you to a path where you became the top of your field. You probably took it in a way where you thought you were never going to take it. Did you ever think you were going to be an author?
1: I, uh, early on, I don't think I really thought about it that much. No, no, I, di- I didn't give this a lot of thought early on. I just figured I'd do it, you know, I'd just do it.
0: Yeah. Would you say that you were naturally good at negotiation growing up? Like, how did you know that being an FBI hostage negotiator would be a good
1: fit for you? Yeah, it didn't. You know, it, it, first of all, uh it didn't sound that hard. You know, it's, A lot of things that other people make look easy or don't sound hard or uh, have a lot of depth to them and require a lot of study and complicated. So I would just, I just want to try it because the thing I always liked about crisis response was decisions have to be made. You know, you can't procrastinate, you can't delay. As a quote from John F. Kennedy a long time ago talking about the risks and costs of comfortable inaction being much greater long-term than and I'm completely paraphrasing him now, but any mistake now is not going to cost you as much as comfortable inaction is going to cost you. So I liked it because you had to make decisions, and then the negotiation stuff got started, and I just loved it. It, just, it spoke to me. I enjoyed it.
0: Awesome. So you brought up negotiations. We'll start to dig really deep. In episode number 23, we were pretty high level. We covered the basic ground. So I'm going to go super deep, ask you about examples, ask you for real life stories, scenarios, and really just go deep. So let's start off with energy. This is something that we didn't talk about in the last podcast, and it's really important just understanding the energy of the room, understanding the energy of your opponent. What should we look for in terms of the energy of the people that we're trying to negotiate with? And then how do we use that information to be better at negotiation?
1: So if you you stop and think and perceive and sort of add it up, if they've got energy, uh, the energy is really going to be a dead giveaway as to what they have in mind. You know, uh, are they distracted? Are they focused on you? Is is there a good vibe? If they're distracted, they're not looking to make a deal. or well, something's in the way. There are other pressures. They're probably not going to make the deal. You know, they can, if they have an aggressive energy towards you, which uh, a lot of people might misinterpret as being bad, the good news is they're looking to make a deal. So um, aggression is a good thing uh, from a counterpart in that it signals their intent to deal with you. So, yeah, the energy is a really good thing. Now, the flip side of that is I don't believe in matching people's energy because that makes you the second mover. And when I was teaching negotiation, to illustrate this point, you know, I used to we used to play tic-tac-toe. And I'd say, what's wrong with tic-tac-toe? Do you want to be first? Do you want to be second? If you go first and you know what you're doing, you can't lose. You can only win or tie. If you go second, and that's what's wrong with being a second mover, the best you could do is tie. That's why you want to go first and tic-tac-toe, because you want to win. And interestingly enough, chess is the same way. That's why there's an advantage to be white, because white moves first. So what does this have to do with energy? Your energy should always probably be positive. You've got a good, natural, positive energy. You know, there's some, there's some mechanisms. There's a new book out that I'm reading. It's not that new. It's new to me. Anti-Fragile by uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who also wrote The Black Swan, which is the idea that inspired the name of my company. But Taleb talks about being anti-fragile, which means you don't just survive from negative events. You grow. It makes you smarter. And he says curiosity is an anti-fragile mindset. It's an energy, it's a demeanor, it's a way of being. Like if you're curious, you're gonna have positive energy. If you're genuinely curious, you're gonna bring out the best in both the other side and yourself. So that's why I say don't match their energy. You know, be positive, be genuinely curious.
0: So, like, no matter what energy they are, come positive, come curious. Now, what's the best frame of mind that you want your opponent to be? Like, do you want, if they come in positive, is that always a good thing? Or could that also be something we should be weary of?
1: You're 31% smarter in a positive frame of mind. It helps you that your counterpart is positive also. So, many of the negotiation strategies are designed to at least get them out of a negative mindset. Because no one collaborates well in a negative mindset. They just a negative mindset's a downward spiral. So yeah, I'm going to want my counterpart to be positive uh, in their interactions with me. It's going to make them want to have a long-term, prosperous relationship. Um, I, you know, you know, you and I were talking about being on Clubhouse earlier. I interviewed Mark Cuban recently on a similar app, and uh, Cuban is positive. You know, however he's portrayed on Shark Tank, some people think he's a bully. But Cuban's positive and he wants to collaborate. Everything he does is about a great long-term relationship, which is how you make a lot of money. It's how how a guy like Mark Cuban, who when he started his company, uh, slept on a floor of somebody's apartment. Now he's a billionaire. Positivity is is a great success move. So yeah, be positive, be curious.
0: I I totally agree. So you mentioned earlier, or just now, that you want to make sure that you, you're you positive, you kind of diffuse the negativity. So let's talk about tactical empathy. And let's talk about the reason why people need you to kind of diffuse the negative energy and what that does to the conversation, and also why people love to be autonomous. Like, why is that important, having autonomy? Uh, talk to us about that.
1: So we're naturally in a negative mindset, survival mode, you know, our default wiring, if you will, is on the negative side. It's what kept the caveman alive. You know, the optimistic caveman got eaten by the bear every time. The negative pessimistic caveman was like, I'm getting out of here. So that's a wiring that we're born with. You know, we, You wake up in the morning, you're in a naturally somewhat negative mode because it was necessary for survival. That's why it's really smart to have a gratitude exercise when you first get out of bed in the morning. It's like mental hygiene. The other, my counterpart, they're going to be negative. I know that because they're human. I'm going to throw some stuff out right off the bat to diffuse it, not to make them positive, but to diffuse the negative. There's a real big difference. And then I'm going to sprinkle it in periodically. Like if I'm getting ready to ask you something, by definition, your caveman brain is going to say, ah, that's greedy. Uh, they're asking for too much. I know that. I know that's how you're wired as a human being. You can't help it. So the diffusing mechanism is, I'm going to say, it's going to seem greedy. And that not only diffuses, but inoculates it. Somebody asked me what it costs to hire my company or to hire me as a consultant. I'm going to say more than you've ever spent in your life, more than you have. Because, first of all, my prices are high. And secondly, I don't want you to get caught off guard by the number. So that's because of your natural negative wiring. So I'm going to let that sink in. And then you're going to decide whether or not you want to hear the number. Getting to your second point, which is autonomy. I need to preserve your autonomy. I need you to choose whether or not you want to hear the number. I don't need to sell you on it. I will need you to choose it. That preserves your autonomy. Then when you're ready, I've diffused the negative, i preserve your autonomy. You're going to go, all right, how much is it? And then the other thing I know, that the number you imagine is going to be higher than the number that I throw out. So my number is actually going to seem like a relief.
0: That's really smart. So let's dig deeper on tactical empathy because people get confused empathy with sympathy and even agreement. So talk to us about the difference between those three.
1: Yeah. So let's let's talk about uh, the mercenaries' definition of empathy or the hostage negotiators. It was why I recently started collaborating with Harvard way back when, because as a hostage negotiator, if I use empathy, it can't be sympathy. I mean, how could I use sympathy with Al-Qaeda? How are they, they going to believe I'm sympathetic to their cause? They're not. Or, you know, a Marxist uh, guerrilla faction in Colombia, South America someplace. They're not going to think I'm sympathetic. But how do I use empathy? Just demonstrating that, demonstrating that I understand where they're coming from. Uh, or you know, one of my favorite examples is, um, you know, we had a terrorism trial. We had a bunch of Muslim witnesses testify voluntarily. How did I get them to testify voluntarily? I'd sit down with them and I'd say, you believe that there's been a succession of United States governments for the last 200 years that have been anti-Islamic. That's an empathy statement. There was no sympathy in there. It was a demonstration of understanding. There was no no agreement. Again, to your point, I never said the US government was anti-Islamic. I just said, you believe this, X, period. That's empathy. It's, it's, It's kind of that simple. So the FBI's run along wrong doing that. And then I read Bob Manukin's book at Harvard. And he says exactly the same thing. Empathy is not agreement. Empathy is not even liking the other side. It's just stating what their opinion is. So, all right, cool. I can use that with anybody.
0: So... If I could just explain this to my listeners, make sure they fully understand it. You're using tactical empathy to basically dismantle the elephant in the room, diffuse the negativity, and make it so that everything's just out on the table. And they feel, do they, it makes them feel more comfortable. Like, what does it actually do to them?
1: Yeah. And I, and I love your phrase, dismantle the elephant in the room versus denying that it's there or pretending that you love the elephant. I love elephants. No, you don't like elephants. It's right there, though. So it makes people feel validated. To feel understood is sort of this almost magical transformation that happens in people. And, and here's why it seems magical. Uh, when we were first working on the book, Tal Raz, a co-author, said, I think when you demonstrate epiphany or a- empathy, it creates an epiphany in the other person, a realization, like a, it's what people say, they say, that's right, when you've demonstrated empathy. That's right, that's how I feel. So, you know, I'm into neuroscience these days. I looked up epiphany on the web and it said, when you experience an epiphany among the neurochemicals that are triggered internally are oxytocin, and oxytocin is a bonding drug. So when someone feels understood by me, I know they bond with me. And if, we're, if I'm looking to make a deal and have a long-term relationship, I want you to bond with me because now you're going to collaborate. So that's, it's a really indirect route to save a lot of time.
0: And I can imagine it makes them feel safe and, and feel like it's okay to tell you information, which in a negotiation, it's all about getting as much information as possible.
1: Exactly. That's right. Look what you did.
0: <laughs> yeah. And since you brought up that's right, we're going to have to break that down to our, <laughs> for our listeners. So tell us about these magical words, that's right, and why you're right is actually not what you want to hear. And that's right is once you hear those words, you know that you're on the right track.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's what people say when they feel completely understood or completely represented by the other side. And, you know, this this the empathy moment, the oxytocin moment, is insane. As an example, it's why common ground is for grade C-level negotiators. Tactical empathy, the that's right moments, that's for the A-plus people. And I'll give you an example. Because regardless of what you think of Donald Trump, whether you're supportive of him or against him, you're either perplexed or proud of the fact that his followers follow him, come what may. Like he said early on in his presidency, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and my supporters would still be behind me. Now, what happened that created this bond with them? Was it common ground? Well, when Trump first ran for president, you know, all the pundits said he'll never get elected because he's a New Yorker, he's a billionaire, He's a white male, but the New Yorker and billionaire stuff means he has no common ground with the Republican base and they will never embrace him. Well, clearly they embraced him despite sharing no common ground as people would normally define it. So what is it? When he stood up and started talking about the stuff that he believed in, at some point in time, people listening to him said, that's right. That's what I believe in. You know, Trump would be up there and say, "You know, I, I, ha- I hate the media," and all the Republicans that hate the media would go like, "That's right, the media is an evil thing." You know, he says, "Lamestream media," and vast majority of the Republican base believe that the media is is biased. So he was saying things, and people were saying, "That's right," creating a bond to be envied. If you love Donald Trump, you want to you want to emulate what he did. If you hate Donald Trump, you're mad at what he did. Because it's such a huge bond. And me and my team, you know, we think, you know, if Donald Trump doesn't tell you what oxytocin will do for you in terms of building relationships, then you are not paying attention.
0: (laughs) And now a quick break from our sponsors. Young and profiters. They may call me the podcast princess, but I'm also the LinkedIn queen. I've been a LinkedIn influencer for six years now, and I teach one of the most popular courses about LinkedIn. to look up how to solve their problems, to learn from industry thought leaders. They're in the mode to buy, whereas on other platforms, they're in the mode to be entertained. You wanna get them in the right mindset. You wanna cut through the noise with LinkedIn ads. In fact, 79% of B2B marketers rate LinkedIn as their top channel for paid media. And LinkedIn has the best targeting because they've got all these different inputs. People are putting their resume basically up on there. And so there's so many keywords that. Again, it's indeed.com slash profiting to get your $75 credit. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode of Yap is brought to you by Indeed. This past year has presented so many challenges in every area of your life from the living room to the virtual boardroom. You keep putting in the work at home. So why not let Indeed do the work of hiring for you? Don't struggle on your own to find quality candidates. Indeed can help you hire the right people right now. Indeed is a hiring partner that gets you what you really want a short list of quality candidates as fast as possible because you can do it all attract interview and hire, all at Indeed. I can tell you from personal experience, back when I worked corporate, whenever I was looking for a new job, I'd always go to Indeed first to look for job posting. Indeed is where all the top tier talent hangs out. Indeed partners with you on every stage of the hiring process, so you can find talent with the skills you need through tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. And with Indeed Assessments, you can reduce hiring time by 12%, according to Indeed Data Worldwide. Assessments are a game changer. It's so great to know you're hiring a person who actually knows how to do the job and doesn't have a resume that just says they does. It's super awkward when you hire a person and then they don't have the relevant skills skills and you have to let them go. Avoid all that hassle with Indeed assessments. Right now you can get started at indeed.com/profiting and get a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post. That's indeed.com/profiting for a $75 job credit for your next job post. The offer is valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's so interesting. It's so true. It's like whether you love him or you hate him, he's got some amazing persuasive skills. Like he's incredible. We actually had Scott Adams on the show. He wrote a whole book about it and we talked about it. It was super interesting. So let's talk about, since we're on this topic, your right versus that's right.
1: Yeah. Thanks for bringing that back up again. Cause a lot of people won't think that your right is the same as that's right. And it's not. I mean, and everybody's guilty of this. Everybody listening to your podcast. I know all of you listeners out there, sometime in the last week, somebody that you love or somebody that you have to keep the relationship with has been hammering you about something you don't want to do and you can't get them to stop and you look them in the eye and you go, you're right. And they shut up and they stop bothering you. You're right is a really polite way to get somebody that either you love or you have to keep a relationship with to leave you alone, to get them to stop talking. There's no shortage of wives who have realized that if they look at their husband when he's giving her a hard time about something, and if she looks at him and says, you're right, he will stop bothering you. <laughs> That's how effective it is. So people, people use it. But the flip side of it is everybody does it, and nobody thinks... That's being done to them. Like, I got news for you, it's being done to you. And that's why you gotta you, you got know the difference. I mean, and it's huge, the implication. If I could share a short story, buddy of mine, Tim Larkin, runs a, a, a self-defense company out of Vegas, good guy. Name of his book is When Violence Is the Answer. It's the answer. Like, he doesn't advocate it, but he's like, there are moments in your life that the only thing that's going to save you is violence. And so if that's true, you got to know how to do it. He's in a black belt hall of fame. He's a sweetheart of a guy, very low-key dude. I meet him, he says, you saved me so much money. I'm like, right, cool, how, how, how did that happen? He had this whole team together in his company. He's laying out strategy. He thinks he's putting everybody on the right track. You know, he's got it going on. He's explaining. And one of his senior executives looks at him and says, Tim, you're right. And he just, it stops him dead in his tracks. And he says, holy cow, I am so far off base with my guys that they're politely asking me to shut up. So he, you know, he didn't get offended. He's a smart dude. He took it for what it was worth. He stopped the meeting. He went and talked to each one of his guys and figured out what all the problems were and aligned everybody on the mission. And he said, if if I had never read, never split the difference, I'd have thought it was a great meeting. I, I didn't ever realize that one of my guys was suddenly telling me like, Tim, we can't take it anymore. You're on the wrong track. I'd have thought you're right. was a great response. He says, you saved me so much money. And I got my team back together, understanding that that was a sign that I was off track with them.
0: It's so true. I feel like now, and, and, the sucky part is that you, I've learned this before and then you forget about it because it's so <laughs> natural. And I feel like I've already learned this before, but I hope that it sticks to everybody tuning in this time that when somebody says, you're right, it means that, hey, they don't want to hear what you're saying anymore. They want you to shut up. They're not taking your advice. They don't agree with you. But for that's right, I guess the one question that I have is, is that really the only phrase that we need to look for or are there variations of that's
1: right? You know, you can, you can get variations of it in the team, the Black Swan team. We've been trying to decide, is it like one star? That's right. Is it five star? You know, you're going to hear that's it exactly. You're going to hear you got it. You're going to hear various versions of it. You, you know, you might hear that's right. It really, if, if you, when they say it, what you're really going for is, um, if you could tell when they say it, they felt a sense of relief. Or, you know, they felt a new idea come to them. Now, any versions of it are good. Those are all good. But, you know, you may need an accumulation. You may be leaving something out. You may not quite have hit it exactly with them. Any version of it is a good version as long as it's not your right. You're on the right track. You're communicating.
0: It's going back to that energy thing that we were just talking about. It's the energy that we're looking for. So if they're like, oh, yeah, you're right, you're right. And they're kind of just moving the conversation along rather than like you feel like they're resonating with what you're saying.
1: Yes. Yeah, good point. And I like the way you put that. I like your focus on energy. That makes a big difference.
0: Yeah. Okay, so I want to get into some real... Examples of this tactical empathy. And I'm going to say a phrase about the way somebody's feeling in a situation. And then I'd love for you to say the sympathetic way that somebody could respond to that. And then the tactical empathy way that someone can respond to that. Okay. This is like a game
1: show. Do it's I like a, a game.
0: Yes. This is like a the negotiation game show with Chris Voss and Halataha. Okay. <laughs> so let's say. Your opponent thinks you're an arrogant jerk based on your past hot-headed interactions. How do you diffuse that elephant in the room in a sympathetic way, which is the wrong way, and then in an empathetic way, which is the right way?
1: A sympathetic way would probably be like, you know, I understand um, my dad was an arrogant, hot-headed jerk, and it uh, it was really hard for me to deal with him too. You know, that would be like trying to share the experience I understand is what people often say when they're trying to be sympathetic, uh, but they want to give you an example of their own experience and how they dealt with it. The unspoken part of it is I'm saying like, look, I got over it, so it's time for you to get over it too. (laughs) Which is you're trying to help people get over stuff. So, you know, you think on the suicide hotline way back when he said, if somebody's in quicksand, You don't help them by getting into the quicksand with them. And that's kind of what sympathy is. So, team me up again, and I'll give you the tactical empathy.
0: Your opponent thinks you are an arrogant jerk based on past hot-headed interactions.
1: You know, you probably feel like I'm an arrogant jerk. You probably feel like I don't listen to you, that I fly off the handle you're probably scared to say anything to me at all because you never know when I'm going to blow up and it's painful for you.
0: So then they feel like, oh, he, he understands me. It just makes them, I guess, feel more calm that that's acknowledged.
1: Yeah, it starts to diffuse it. It makes me look honest, genuine, unafraid of my shortcomings. You know, you're not going to solve a problem unless you're aware of the problem. If I, if I at least articulate it, at least I'm aware of it. You know, I'm not. I'm not giving you a sympathetic response, which is like kind of like you know everybody deals with hot-headed people. It's just part of life. Uh, that doesn't show any awareness that maybe my approach might be counterproductive. So if I say, look, you know, I probably seem like a hot-headed jerk. If I begin to demonstrate at least some awareness of it. You have an encouragement. I am never going to fix a problem that I won't even admit is a problem. You know, first step, right? You know, the 12-step programs globally, whatever 12-step thing you're dealing with. The first step is recognition of the problem, at least recognition of the dynamic. Maybe I don't even want to say it's a problem. At least I recognize the dynamic. That's tremendously reassuring to the other side. And it doesn't imply that they're wrong in not reacting or they're off base or they're, you know, any, any of the negative things that simple recognition has a tendency to keep from ever getting on the table.
0: Okay, one more. Let's say you're doing a group project and two colleagues don't get along with each other and they're, they're refusing to work together. How would you diffuse that with tactical empathy?
1: So your, your answer might be like, look, you guys clearly see things differently. You guys are clearly rubbing each other the wrong way. What are we trying to accomplish here? So I, I threw, I, I did two things with that. You know, I, I threw out some understanding that wasn't pointing a finger at either person. Or not, I don't need um, them to feel the group is pointing a finger at them and I don't need a group to think, that I'm pointing a finger at I'm just calling out the dynamic, you know? I'm looking to dismantle the elephant in the room. So to follow on, what question, which is a calibrated question, your your questions, if you ask them at all, probably ought to start with what or how, because you're asking the question to create an effect, and then to get people to think. And you also got to throw in, correct tone of voice because i could say what are we trying to accomplish here which is accusatory you know my voice is saying like why don't you two idiots see the damage you're creating but instead i go what are we what are we trying to accomplish here you know it's curious it's trying to get people without feeling accused to take a look at their original reason for being in the room, original reason for being part of the group and give them the opportunity to decide whether or not they wanna stick to that original reason, which is again, that autonomy thing that you were talking about earlier, which people will die to preserve their autonomy. People will walk away, people will tank deals. There's all sorts of things that to other people, that they do that it's clearly damaging to them short-term and long-term just to preserve their autonomy.
0: And that's specifically to preserve the ability to say no, right? So why is that so powerful? Why do people like to have the choice to say no? What's the psychology behind that?
1: Again, I believe it's an autonomy issue. You know, one of the books that inspired me early on when I first started realizing a hostage negotiation applied to business... It was a book called Start With No, written back in 2002 by a guy named Jim Camp. And he was a salesman. He had backgrounds in both the military and in sports, coaching. But he's working in a sales as a salesman. And he called it the right to veto. And his approach on Start With No was in a sales process, he would say, look, I want you to know you can say no to the, no to me at any time. Any moment in time, it's okay to say no, I will go away. I'm not trying to get you to say yes without you understanding that you could say no at any moment, call it the right to veto. And just preserving that right, suddenly he made more sales. Suddenly he made more deals. He made more agreements. He made more than anybody else did. And he's, and that's where, you know, Jim said people will die to preserve their autonomy. And I was a hostage negotiator. I'm like, yeah, no kidding. You know, we got people shooting themselves all the time just to avoid surrendering to the police. So this autonomy thing and a, and a right to say no, the feeling that it's okay to say no goes an awful long way in making people feel that you're not trying to bamboozle
0: Yeah. So for me, one of the least intuitive things about everything that you teach is the fact that we're not trying to get people to say yes. We're trying to get people to say no because of this thing we just talked about, that people love to have the choice to say no, and it makes them feel in control, right? So, so talk to us about how we can ask questions in a way where people would start with no and then agree with us and, and get to the yes, but they always start with saying no and then get to the yes. So how do we ask questions like
1: that? Yeah, well, most of them, it's simple, but it's hard because it's so against our wiring. Like, I never say, have you got a few minutes to talk? I say, it's now a bad time to talk. I never say, do you agree? I say, do you disagree? I never say, is this something that would work for you? I say, is this a ridiculous idea? Are you against? I mean, the transformation from yes to no is actually really simple once it doesn't scare the hell out of you. But so many people, the first time out, are so afraid because you... You're taught that yes is success, which if you believe that, it makes no by definition failure. People are horrified of the word. Once you can can cross that bridge, the rest of it is so easy.
0: Why do you think people will tend to agree with you more and you'll get what you want when they actually say no first?
1: Well, people are conditioned from the age of two that when they say no... It makes him feel safe and protected. And it's what an adult says to a child when a child does something wrong, no. So, what does a child learn from that? Saying no is what adults do. Adults' jobs to say no. I, you know, I once, and even, like, okay, there was a, a guy who was a lieutenant on NYPD. He once told me uh, a lieutenant's job was to say no. And he didn't even care what the question was. He felt like he was doing his job when he said no. So it makes no sense, but people condition themselves over and over and over. Like Pavlov's dog from that famous psychological experiment. When I say no, I feel safe and in control. So get somebody to say no, because what the real issue is, you need to know what comes after the word, either yes or no. If, you, people, if, you, if I get you to say yes, you're gonna be reluctant to say anything else because you're gonna feel like you're digging yourself into a hole. If I say, which is, do you agree? You might wanna say yes, but here are the problems. If I say, do you disagree? You're gonna be like, no, but I can't agree unless you fix these following problems. And now I've got a path forward. The really what I need to know is I need you thinking, laying out problems for me. And when you're feeling safe and secure, you can do that.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. I feel like an easy way to to test this out is even in your email, because it might be hard to do it in person because it's hard to think of those things on the spot. But next time you're writing an email, instead of asking a question to get them to say yes, try to ask them a question that will get them to say no and just use that as practice. Is there any other ways that we can practice this? Because I feel like this one gem is so powerful if people just learned how to use
1: it. Well, you know, and and to get used to it and just change from, have you got a few minutes to talk to you? is now a bad time to talk, like in all your conversations. It's small stakes practice for high stakes results. So in a, in a little bitty little bitty conversations, we're trying to get asked on a regular basis, just practice, get no instead and, and gain a feel and watch to see over and over again the different kind of reaction you get.
0: It's so interesting, I love this topic. So let's talk about the illusion of control. How else can we give our opponent the illusion of control? What are some other tactics?
1: Yeah, well, the what and how questions. You know, In a black swan method, we, we call calibrated questions. People love to be asked what to do. People love to be asked how to do something. You give them the illusion of control when you ask those questions. And negotiation is not about control. To guide someone. But in crisis intervention, they called guided discovery. That's not control, it's giving the other side a lot of latitude. But you kind of frame things with a what or a how question. And the other side doesn't feel framed. They, they feel they were just asked what to do or how, how to do it. I mean, they feel in control. So it's giving the other side the illusion of control It's usually through a what or a how question.
0: Could you give us an example?
1: Well, you know, the the famous, how am I supposed to do that as a way to say no? The other side doesn't feel attacked. Uh, What it really is, is if you can't do something because the implementation is really difficult, you say, how am I supposed to do that? Or you might say it three times, how am I supposed to do that? Or you might say it a third time, how am I supposed to do that? Each one of those questions makes the other side think about the complexity of the problems, but they don't know that you made them think about it. They feel in control. They feel like you, you're asking for help. And, you know, that's kind of the, that's the way you get it started.
0: One more question on this, like, general topic, accusations audits. Talk to us about that. How do we use them? What's your methodology there?
1: Uh, This whole uh, accusations audit is doing an audit, if you will, of all the negative things the other side might think about you. Not what you think about them, but what they might think about you. And it really starts with, you know, what's all the stuff that you're worried that you need to deny? Like, I don't want you to think I'm greedy. I don't want you to think I'm not listening. I don't want you to think I'm disrespectful. Uh, If you're in sales, every salesperson knows that there are enough, not your fault, but there are enough slimy salespeople out there that sales has got a negative connotation to the word. You know, the car salesman, the used car salesman. Everybody in sales understands that. So you might want to say, I don't want you to think I'm just another salesman, slick salesman. Whatever you might want to deny, you simply take the denial out and list that stuff out and put it at as you may think, you probably think is even stronger. I'm sure you probably think that since I'm in sales, I'm another fast talking, hustling salesperson who doesn't care about you. It just wants to push you into a deal. I'm sure you, I'm sure this is gonna sound re- disrespectful. I'm sure this is gonna sound like I don't understand. You're probably gonna think this makes me look greedy. Empathy again, on the other side, mind see things but just listing stuff out in advance and using it to either dismantle the elephant in the room or to keep the elephant from getting built in the first place. That's the thing that most people are most afraid of is they think you're going to speak a negativity into existence by calling it out. You know, what's that stupid movie Candyman? If you say Candyman five times, boom, the, you know, the, ba- the boogeyman is there. What really happens is it creates this inoculating effect. So much so, that if you don't have a negative thought in your head, but I know you're gonna react negatively to what I'm gonna say, I will say, this is gonna sound harsh. And then I'll let you, I'll watch you to watch you brace yourself, and you're gonna give me some sort of a physical signal, if not verbal, to go ahead. And this is actually now we realize is grounded in neuroscience because an emotional pain and a physical pain is almost exactly the same thing. And neuroscience has found that if I warn you pain is coming, there's going to be a window that you need to brace yourself. Like if I if I have to if I'm a doctor and I'm going to put a give you a, a needle, I'm going to say this is going to hurt. Now, somewhere between 3 and 20 seconds is probably the window. And I need to watch you, and you're going to go like, all right, give it to me. And then bang, whatever that is. So if I say, effectively, it's going to sound harsh, which is what I have to say is going to hurt, I'll let you brace yourself, and you will appreciate the warning. And it will hurt less every time. Every time.
0: Hold tight, everyone. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. Young and Profiters, I'm about to be jet-setting all over the world. I'm going to London, Cancun, New Orleans, and New York to speak. I'm going to be up there with the bright lights and I want to be spiffy. I want to look fresh. And so I'm going on a big shopping spree. I got to get clothes. I got to get hair stuff, skincare stuff, makeup. But I'm not going to feel guilty about this shopping spree because Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Rakuten is the shopping platform for savvy savers. From May 6th to May 13th, they're having their biggest cashback event of the year. I'm talking about 15% cashback at hundreds of stores with additional cashback bonuses. And they've got so many stores participating in their Big Give Week. So when it comes to clothes, I'm looking at Splendid and Good American And when it comes to beauty, they've got so many good stores participating. They've got Ulta, Fenty, Bobbi Brown, Blue Mercury, and all the products that we love. Now we can get cash back. It's like getting a discount on the stuff you're going to buy anyway. It's absolutely amazing. They even have travel brands, so that's going to be super convenient for me with all my upcoming trips, Expedia, Hotels.com. You can get deals on everything from electronics to home goods to travel and beauty. Young and Profiters, you're going to want to grab this limited time deal with both hands. You get high cashback rates for only eight days. So hurry. Membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of the 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app at R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Whether you're a seasoned investor or looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Young and profiters, as you may know, I launched my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass a little bit over a year ago. It was my first course. Go to shopify.com slash profiting now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash profiting. And it's very similar to what you just said about the pricing when you say, hey, like it's you're going to think it's high okay, tell me what the price is. And then, like you said, they think they're expecting something way worse because you warned them. And so, like you said, it probably relaxes them and then they accept it more because they were expecting something way worse. Their imagination probably took them elsewhere.
1: Exactly.
0: So let's talk about body language. You have a course on masterclass, which is Super popular, and congratulations on that! And in that course, you touch on the seven thirty eight fifty five rule when it comes to body language. Could you talk to us about this? Because we haven't talked about it yet on any of our podcasts together.
1: All right. Well, basically, if you add those numbers up, you get a hundred. And the thirty eight stands for tone of voice, and the fifty five stands for body language, which is kind of. 93% of your communication is not the words. And there's uh, a lot of people that, you know, they want to argue whether those numbers are accurate. They get crazy over it. And that they're really the most important issues to, re- regardless of how strong you think those numbers are. Tone of voice and body language is a lot more important than the words. I can say to you, wow, that was a smart remark. That's an (laughs) insult. But if I were to say to you, wow, that was a smart remark. That's a compliment. I didn't change a word. If that doesn't illustrate to you the difference in tone of voice, I don't change a single word and the meaning changes 180 degrees. So what about body language? Our director of business development is a young lady named Davy Johnson. And she's just naturally an encouraging person. And she's, she's told me, we were talking about this the other day. She knows if she's talking to somebody, she tilts her head to the side and puts her eyebrows up. Like she's really interested. Like she's shocked at what people will share with her. And she'll just go, really? And they will start laying out stuff to her of the struggles that they're dealing with and how much our help as a business could be for them. And she's almost astonished. She didn't even have to ask a question. She just goes, really? And body language can be so encouraging if you let it be. Or conversely, it'll shut people down if you don't watch it. So it can be an enormously encouraging and enormously powerful thing to use in conjunction with your intent. I said there were two things about the 738-55. The real issue is when body language and tone of voice do not match up with the words. That's when you know you got a problem. It doesn't matter what the ratio is. It's when those things are not lining up then you realize that what they're saying and what they're feeling are two different things. And then you dig into it.
0: So could you give us an example of, a common example of when people's, what they say doesn't match their body language?
1: If I'm trying to get an agreement from you and you go, okay, a lot of people would say, oh, they said, okay, we're good. But the way I said it, there's a lot of stuff crossing my mind. There's a lot of things that I'm worried about. If I go, okay, you think that deal's going through without a hitch, you are in for a rude surprise. How do you deal with that? You just say something as simple as what we call a label and you go like, I heard you say okay, but it seemed like a lot of things crossed your mind when you did. That's... What gets them, it makes them feel safe sharing the things that went through their mind. So let's, that, that, that would be an example of how their words would not match up with their tongue.
0: And labeling basically just acknowledges what they're feeling and you try to get the information out of them. So you're basically just telling them what you perceive to be their, their feelings, how they're, how they're feeling.
1: Yeah, exactly. And um, really, since the first time that we talked, we use labels a lot more than uh, questions to get information out of people. Now, you know, instead of saying, like, what's on your mind today? I might say, seems like there's stuff on your mind today. Now, the second way is most likely to get a lot more really good information out of you than the first way. Or what's stopping you guys from going through with this deal would switch to seems like there's something stopping you guys from going through with this deal. That second one, that label, is going to get a lot more information.
0: Do you understand why just that small shift would, would change the way somebody reacts to it? Like, what, what's the reasoning behind that?
1: I think principally um, Danny Kahneman, who wrote the book Thinking Fast and Slow, talked about slow, in-depth thinking and fast, reactionary thinking. And a what question will trigger you into slow, in-depth thinking, which means you're going to think a lot about the question, which means the answer is going to be guarded and filtered. And depending upon how much mental energy you have, you may just stop thinking about it because it's too much work. So questions cause those sorts of reactions. We're seeing it on a regular basis. If I just go, seems like, for whatever reason, I know it will trigger your unvarnished thoughts to come out much more readily. So much so that we had a client say, labels unlock the floodgates of truth talk. Because people got so much more candid and just, They don't think about what they're saying. They just start sharing it.
0: And then wouldn't you say that, so I guess I'm putting two strategies together. If you say, seems like, and then you tell a lie so that they correct you, isn't that something powerful? Like people love to correct other people. So if you say like, seems like you you came here not wanting to make a deal when you know they came here wanting to make a deal or something like that. And then they'll be like, oh no, no. Is, Is that a good strategy to use?
1: Yeah, well, uh, clearly you've been doing your homework. <laughs> you know, people love to correct. So, sporadically, you know, we teach people to say stuff wrong on purpose to get corrected because a correction is feels so good. It's almost addicting. It's ridiculous how good people feel when they correct. And then a secondary consequence of that it plays in your benefit also. I think the quote is attributed to Maya Angelou. People don't remember what you said. They remember how you made them feel. Well, if you get really closely guarded information from them, you don't want them to regret telling you. So if they corrected you when they gave you that closely guarded information, they remember how they feel when they said it. They felt great in the moment. And they're not going to regret sharing really intimate details with you because it felt so good while they were doing. Do you
0: have an example of when you got somebody to correct themselves and how it helped you in a negotiation or just any sort of example to really drill this home with everybody tuning in?
1: You know, um, uh, one of the students when we were teaching at Georgetown uh, was in the midst of a real estate deal and the building was too good to be true. Like a cash cow, historic district, uh, which meant it was, it, was a, it was a cash machine and it couldn't be knocked down and a historic district meant competing buildings couldn't be built. So it was a really unique building. And he couldn't understand why the building was up for sale. And he said, seems like the owner just doesn't believe in a fundamental future of the market. And the agent immediately shot back. Now he's underwater on several other buildings. Now, that was closely held information that no agent should ever share. But it was a correction. And this guy didn't even know he was saying it wrong on purpose. He was just trying to figure it out. And so what's the possible, why would a guy sell a cash cow? Like, is it is it haunted? You know, what is going on here? <laughs> and so he just said, it seems like he doesn't believe in the future fundamentals of the market. And, and the agent shot back immediately information that he should not have shared because it was a correction. It's just, you know, another, another company, There, lo- two companies are, are at impasse. And the one company that uh, we're coaching, they think they have a rough idea who the problem is on the other side of the table, but it's they could only narrow it down to one or two po- possible people. So let's call them Tom and Bob. So at the table, they go, seems like Tom and Bob are against the steel. The counterpart said, no, it isn't Tom, it's Bob. Immediately threw his colleague under the bus. But since it was a correction, he did it without thinking about it and didn't regret sharing the information because he was correcting the other side. It's crazy.
0: It's so interesting. This is like one of the most interesting things things that I've heard you say before. It it really has stuck with me. So let's talk about sensitive topics because there's lots of sensitive topics out there right now. I mean, anti-vax versus vax. I'm Palestinian. So Palestine versus Israel is one that I feel very close to. There's Black Lives Matter issues. There's so many tough conversations going on right now. And I just wonder what advice do you have to people who are holding these discussions? There's also workplace discussions about these topics where people are wanting to open up. How can we best have these sensitive conversations where we can leave having a meaningful conversation and not just everybody fighting and, and you know, just slamming doors?
1: Yeah, you know, take, take a counterintuitive approach. And just say, look, before I disagree with you, here's what I believe your point of view is. And start stating the other side's position. And you're not allowed to say your point of view until the other side says that's right to you. It's that simple. And uh, I, didn't re- I didn't know you were Palestinian. I-, I love that revelation. And I don't know if you, you know, we had a discussion on this on Clubhouse not that long ago. Which I don't know if you're aware of, but, you know, we it was going to be an Israeli-Palestinian discussion. And it was when the bombing was going on, you know, and, and Israel is knocking the heck out of Gaza. And the social media arguments were just like my friend that set it up, Nicole Benham, says this is exhausting. She's Jewish. And she's like, I'm trying to get people to talk about this. And it's it's exhausting. And so while we didn't have any breakthroughs that night, we also didn't have any arguments. And everybody that came to the table, highly emotional for all of their reasons. And we're we're used to them to turn into shouting matches and name calling right away. The real benefit to that approach is, and there there was one young lady that came on and she couldn't articulate a single thing that was the Israeli point of view. And she never got angry. And one of the things that I was really pleased about that was, you know, her inability to even state the other side's point of view at all meant she was really embroiled in this emotionally and probably had had one screaming match after another that entire week. And in that conversation... Her emotions did get out of control. So at least she wasn't worse off by having joined the conversation. And if if that's all you can get sometimes, at least somebody's not worse off by the attempted demonstration at articulating the other side. That in and of itself is the reason to try it and see how far you can get.
0: I'm so mad that I missed that conversation. I didn't know that you guys did that, but you know, hopefully there's no next time, but maybe next time. <laughs> you
1: know, make sure you know if we try, you know, if we yeah, I'm gonna if we get have
0: to Pay attention more. Okay, Chris, this was an amazing conversation. I do want to be respectful of your time. The last question I ask all my guests on Young and Profiting Podcast is what is your secret to profiting in life?
1: And I was just thinking about it earlier today. I mean... Um, Probably two things. Yeah, it's a journey. Look, it's just a journey. Take, take your eyes off the destination and focus on a journey. And then whatever you're into, there's got to be something that's larger than you. I am watching a documentary yesterday on David Geffen. And David Geffen's a billionaire. But what I really, and I didn't know anything about the guy other than he's a rich Hollywood guy. And my take was that he was really dedicated to the musicians and the artists that he served. And what he was dedicated to was the creation of their art. And it was bigger than him. And it sustained him. And I saw another documentary on Clive Davis. Conversely, Clive Davis dedicated to the music. Like he wanted to create his bigger thing was he wanted phenomenal music. And so if, if there's, there's something you're dedicated to that you're pursuing that's bigger than you, it's going to, life is going to be enormously rich. And there are other riches besides money. Now, money's, money's a means. Money's jet fuel. And the other thing about Geffen, the Geffen documentary was, he said, Dave, you got a billion dollars. Are you happy? And he was like, wow. Now doing my thing is what makes me happy. So, you know, that's how you become profitable. And as a a last note, you know, I'd like to give people an opportunity to follow up with me if possible. But I'm really glad you asked that question because there are larger things. Once you're into something larger than you, then life is going to be enormously profitable.
0: Of course. And where can our listeners go to learn more about you and everything that you do?
1: Yeah, you know, the easiest thing to do, the smartest thing, uh, is to subscribe to our newsletter. It's called The Edge. Comes out on Tuesday mornings. Simplest way to subscribe, sign up, text to sign up function. The number you text to is 33777. That's 33777. The message you send is Black Swan Method. Three words, not case sensitive, spaces between the words. The newsletter is a gateway to everything we do. It's free. But better than that, it's comp- it's actionable and it's concise. And then it's the gateway, it really is. We got so many things that we can do to help you raise the level of your game and also look at life differently. Life's a lot more enjoyable when negotiation is no longer combative, but it's collaborative.
0: 100 percent. Negotiations are in every area of life, whether you know it or you don't know it. Almost every interaction is a negotiation. So I'd highly recommend go signing up for his newsletter. I have his newsletter. It's great. Super actionable. And then you have a lot of free resources, right? You have a lot of free resources on your website.
1: A newsletter is really the gateway to the website, which if you want to go there is blackswanltd.com. And we got no shortage of free stuff for people. Because, you, you know, you're going to kind of want to get your feet under you. You're going to want to find out where you are. At some point in time, we get some really sophisticated stuff we would love to teach you. It's not going to do you any good until you've gone through the free material anyway. So, yeah, go to the website. Get the free stuff. Indulge yourself. And, uh, and you'll enjoy it.
0: Awesome. So I'll put that number to text in the show notes, guys, so that you don't need to write it down. Just head over to the show notes so you guys can grab that number to text and what to text Chris. Chris, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to have you on.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I love talking with you. You're upbeat. You're fun to talk to.
0: What an amazing conversation with Chris. He never fails us. It's always a pleasure talking to him and this was actually my third time interviewing him and each time I learned some new negotiation tactics that I'll take with me forever. When I first interviewed him back in episode number 23, the main takeaway I had from that episode was all about how to name your price. He told me that you should always give an odd number when you're trying to make a sale because odd numbers sound more thought out and people are less likely to negotiate when you give them an odd number. So you never wanna just give them like an even easy number like it's $1,000. You wanna say my offer is 997 because then they feel like it was a a way more thought thought out process in terms of how you priced it and that you didn't just pick out a price out of midair. So that's the one thing that I learned from him in episode number 23 that I literally use like every single day and it works. So if you like easy hacks like that and you want to know the basics of negotiation, go check out episode number 23. It was my first interview with Chris. And this time around, we had a more advanced conversation and I also had a lot of great takeaways. You know, many people believe that negotiation Negotiation requires this rhetorical strength and an unwillingness to be flexible or give in to your opponent's wishes. And there's a place for good cop, bad cop when it comes to negotiation, but successful negotiations require a high degree of sensitivity and emotional intelligence. The art of negotiation is really about understanding your adversary's motives and emotions and building trust. So that was a huge aha moment for me in this interview, that negotiation is not just this cut-and-dry, win-lose affair. And in fact, research shows that there's no way to completely cut out emotion out of this haggling process that we call negotiation. So when it comes to negotiation, you always want to remember that emotions are not the obstacle. They are the solution. It's all about being empathetic, recognizing the other person's feelings and motivations, and then getting them to feel safe with you, getting them to trust you. Ignoring their needs won't work in any negotiation. Your opponent will just become frustrated and uncooperative. To influence your counterparts' emotions, you need to first identify them. You need to pick out your counterparts' deeper emotional drivers and then use a tactic called labeling to bring them out into the open. So something related to this that we talked about in this interview was the difference between tactical empathy and sympathy. To recap, sympathy is feeling pity for someone else's misfortune and then trying to build a bond off that pity. Tactical empathy, on the other hand, is understanding somebody else's feelings in order to get what you want from them. It sounds a little manipulative, but it's not. It's about recognizing the person's perspective and feelings and then vocalizing those perspectives and feelings so that they feel connected, so that they feel like you're listening, they feel understood, and then that helps you get what you want. Tactical empathy is not the same thing as sympathy. You're not just agreeing with them. You're just understanding them and then acknowledging those feelings by vocalizing those feelings. Tactical empathy is designed to build good faith and give your negotiation partner the illusion of control. That illusion of control is so important because people like to make decisions that they're in control over. Tactical empathy uses trust to deliberately influence your counterpart's emotions. So for me, that was the biggest take away from this interview and I'm going to try very hard to start practicing some of these things and making sure that I use empathy, tactical empathy in my negotiations going forward to help make sure that I can get to those win-win solutions a little bit more easily. There were so many gems in this conversation, and if you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, I would highly recommend that you go check out our previous episode together, number 23, Negotiate Like a Boss with Chris Voss. In that episode, we talked about the basics of negotiation and how to use those tactics in real life. Here's a clip from that episode.
2: You get real good at that with just practice. You get into a Lyft driver, and a Lyft driver says, how are you today? And, and you can say, ah, oh, sounds like it's been a tough day. Or you pick up on their affect, and they seem happy, and you go, hey, you seem happy. You get your practice in by just labeling what's on the surface, and that's how you get started. Mm-hmm. Now, emotions are kind of crazy in that if we label a positive, you sound happy, that increases a positive. If they're frustrated, and you say you sound frustrated, the interesting thing is the labeling of a negative decreases it. It has the opposite effect. So you get some practice in and you get used to hitting those emotions, which now you're clearing the way. They feel understood. They want to cooperate with you. They're more collaborative Mm -hmm. because they instantly feel more understood. So it's a little bit of the karate kid wax on, wax off thing. You just start labeling people and just label whatever you hear. After a while, your ability to distinguish and understand what you're doing is really going to catch up to you fast. And that's how you get into people very, very quickly.
0: This episode with Chris Voss was one of our Yap Classics. We actually replayed it on the podcast because so many listeners enjoyed this episode. If you want to make sure you become a negotiation expert, you got to listen to that episode number 23. And you guys can always find me on social media. I'm on Instagram at Yap with Hala or LinkedIn. Just search for my name. It's Hala Taha. Big thanks to the amazing Yap team as always. Today, I want to give a special thanks to my hardworking production team here at Young and Profiting. Shout out to Matt and Puneet, our audio engineers, Rebecca, our lead producer, and Greta, who is our amazing researcher. This is Hala signing off until next
1: time.